This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, we're celebrating Women's History Month with the first African-American woman to lead a NASA center. Under her leadership, NASA is launching into a new era of space exploration with people returning to the moon and then onto Mars. And the National Survey of Children's Health underwent a major transformation under Reem Gondor's leadership at HHS. How her work unlocked key information to help the overall well-being of our nation's children. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. This year, NASA enters a new era of space exploration. It's slated to launch the first phase of the Artemis mission by June 2022 for an uncrewed test run to the moon. The mission will pave the way for sending humans back to the moon by 2024, including the first female and first person of color, and eventually sending the first astronauts to Mars. Vanessa White is the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center, where she oversees NASA's Astronaut Corps, Mission Control Center, and the International Space Station. Vanessa, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. NASA works very closely with Russia on the International Space Station. Has that been awkward lately, given what's happening here on Earth? Well, you know, the International Space Station uh, has been uh, orbiting our, our planet Earth for over 22 years, and for over 21 years, we've had astronauts and cosmonauts living on board together, uh, conducting science and technology experiments for the benefit of us here on Earth. And uh, so we have continued to do those operations, even though we do currently have, you know, on here on Earth, a conflict that's going on. Uh, the astronauts and the cosmonauts are working well together. And then uh, with regards to the work that we do here on Earth in terms of mission control uh, here in Houston, there's mission control in Moscow, and we've been working together to maintain safe and, and professional relations between both parties. And so able to continue to successfully conduct our experiments on board the, on the International Space Station. You know, there were media reports earlier that an American astronaut would be stranded in space and that Russia wouldn't bring him home. Were you involved in the discussions with the Russians about that? So uh, we have been working with our counterparts, and I can assure you uh, that Mark Vandehei, uh, who went up on a Soyuz uh, rocket, he will return along uh, with two cosmonauts, and those plans are for him to return on March 30th. So we are preparing and planning uh, to um, bring uh, Mark back to the U.S. once he lands. Uh, turning now to Artemis, you know, we've already been to the moon several times. Uh, what's different about these missions? Awesome. Well, you know, Artemis, the reason it's named that is Artemis in Greek mythology is the twin sister of Apollo. And so with Apollo, we had 12 men that went to the moon, but now our astronaut corps is diverse. And so we now have people of color, we have women. And so with Artemis, we will go to the moon differently with a different astronaut corps. Additionally, when we went to the moon as uh, America, we went only with U.S. 
This time we're having our international partners go with us and we're working right now today on the missions that will take us to the moon. And I do wanna say Artemis III, uh, so that will be the first human landing on the surface since Apollo of the moon <laughs> you know the the first phase will um will be to launch this summer what have the challenges been of meeting that timeline as well as future artemis launches yeah so our uh, engineers and technicians and scientists have been working uh, towards this mission for some time. Of course, uh, we were impacted by COVID, just like everyone else. Uh, so there have been uh, impacts to the supply chain, also to uh, personnel. Uh, we've been able to continue to press forward and overcome those, but uh, I will say that that has been a challenge as we've been readying ourselves for these missions. But you do think that you'll meet the June 20, uh, June of this year date. Yes, that is our plan. This week, uh, the plan is to do a test run, if you will, to uh, take the uh, spacecraft it's on top of the launch vehicle, and it's going to call what we say a rollout. And that is, it's going to actually transport out to the launch pad and we'll do connections. We'll uh, do what we consider to be, uh, we call it a wet dress. You think of it like a dress rehearsal and we'll see if there's any issues, problems that we have. And that should happen in early April. And that would then allow us to be able to do the launch in June. Well, you just we do have to, we do have to complete that dress rehearsal before <laughs> we were ready to go. You, you also selected the 10 astronauts for the Artemis mission, for the crewed mission. How were they selected? And I mean, I guess it would be quite a competitive process. Yes. No. So we have not selected the actual astronauts yet. Uh, on a, a year or so ago, we uh, kind of unveiled what the astronaut cadre would look like. And you saw a sample of the fact that they're women, they're people of color, they're men that would be identified as being a part of the Artemis. But we have to go through now and actually do the selections by mission. And that has not happened yet. We'll be working on that. Once we do this um, uncrewed mission, then we will uh, look at then who will be the astronauts that would be on board when we go forward for Artemis two, and so what, the what, first crew mission will be Artemis two. What, what will be involved in the training of that crew? What what's the plan for that? Yes, yeah, so they have to be trained on how to operate the Orion. That's the spacecraft that will be taking them. Uh, they will have to learn uh, the procedures for when we do our Artemis three mission. How are we going to? Um, do what we call rendezvous with the landing system. And so that's like uh, making the actual connection with that system. And how do you actually mate and dock with that system so that then the astronauts can go forward from the Orion spacecraft into the human landing system. They have to learn how to train, they train on doing spacewalks on the surface which is different than doing them on space station. So right now today we have a spacewalk happening outside of the space station. And so there is uh, microgravity and the astronauts are moving around. They don't necessarily use their, their legs for those spacewalks. But now when you're walking on the surface, you use your legs. So different things that you have to train for uh, in, in human spaceflight. 
You know, Vanessa, I wonder what it means to you that that future mission will land the first female and first person of color on the, the surface of the moon. What does that mean to you personally? To me personally, so I've had the pleasure of working on NASA missions uh, since the space shuttle era. And I know that our um, we have wonderful astronauts that have been training their whole lives. And um, we have been in what we call low Earth orbit, so uh, near, near the Earth for, for many years. And now we're going to be going back into deep space exploration at the moon. And then, as you said, eventually on to Mars. So for me personally, I see this accomplishment of what we as humans can do and what we can do together. We can do in a very uh, diverse uh, workforce with many people. And, and as I mentioned with Artemis, it's not only the fact that we'll have diversity in our astronaut corps, but we'll be going with our international partners. People from all over the world will be going together, going further out into space. All right, Vanessa, we'll take a quick pause here and then we'll continue our conversation. Coming next, we continue speaking with NASA's Vanessa Weich on how she is keeping the Johnson Space Center at the cutting edge of space exploration. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm here with Vanessa Weich. She's the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Vanessa, the Johnson Space Center is the home of America's astronaut corps, and we now have the emergence of private sector astronauts. So how do you see government and commercial astronauts working together? Yeah, so Mimi, we have been working as an agency uh, to, I, I would say, support uh, the commercialization of low Earth orbit and eventually of uh, space in general. And uh, so we've been working with um, companies that are now supplying cargo and um, other uh, research to the International Space Station. So uh, today we have uh, SpaceX and uh, Northrop Grumman that uh, do what we call resupply for the International Space Station. And there are other companies that are vying to do that as well. Um, you are now hopefully aware that we're launching again from Florida, and that's been uh, done by SpaceX. And Boeing is also developing a spacecraft to be able to la launch our astronauts from Florida. And now those companies are able to expand and they are able to offer those services to others. And that is really what we call in increasing and developing the space economy. And NASA has been uh, from our very beginning, um, you know, doing what we call spinoffs of technology. So this is really a part of our, our mission is to enable this commercialization of space. But Vanessa, why sorry, Vanessa, I mean, how realistic is that commercial space economy given how expensive space operations are? Well, and that's the beauty of it is now that we have uh, private industry and we have public-private partnerships teaming together, um, we're able to work together to bring down some of the costs. So the cost for launch operations has been coming down uh, now that we have these private companies that are coming in and trying to figure out innovative ways to do that. 
If you look at SpaceX, uh, they have been uh, doing uh, reuse of their boosters, and that has allowed them to bring down the cost. Uh, so what we're hoping for is as more people go in, come into being a part of this industry, that overall it increases everyone's ability to go to space. We actually have a, a program that uh, we are management of at the Johnson Space Center called Commercial Lunar Payload Services. And so there are companies that we're working with for them to be able to provide robotic missions to the moon. And they have been working on this for uh, a little over two years and are slated to perhaps maybe uh, have a our first robotic landing, commercial robotic landing on the surface uh, as early as this summer, maybe into the fall. You also oversee the International Space Station, as I mentioned in the last segment, and operations for that have been extended to 2030. Will the Russians continue to support the ISS given the economic sanctions imposed on them? So um, right now we're working with all of our partners to uh, have agreements to extend until 2030. And everyone is committed to doing that. Uh, we have to um, make sure that we have safe operations. So we're all doing upgrades to whatever systems that we have. The Russians, uh, for example, uh, they sent up a new module uh, back in the, in the summertime where they, added that module and it allows them to to continue their propulsive responsibilities and docking responsibilities for the International Space Station. So we see that as a strong sign that they are committed because uh, they would not have done that had they not been planning to continue on. And as far as uh, the smooth transition of operations to commercial services for the International Space Station, what does that mean for Johnson's um, Space Center's role in the future of space? Well, for us, you know, we believe that the International Space Station is an enabler of our deep space exploration. The International Space Station, we can send our research projects there and they can arrive within, say, four hours and we can do testing. And if we have issues, we can send resupplies to the International Space Station and be able to resolve um, what we're trying to figure out within a time frame that we could then implement for our exploration research. When we go to the to the moon, you know, we're talking days. When we finally go to Mars, it's a month long um, time to get there. So the International Space Station is central to us accomplishing our exploration goals. So yeah, it is important for us to continue to have those operations. You know, switching gears here, this is Women's History Month um, and you're the first uh, African-American woman to lead a NASA center. What does that mean to you and any particular challenges that you faced and lessons that you've learned? It just uh, demonstrates that it's, um, possible for anyone to achieve the goals and desires that they have. Um, I know for me growing up as a, as a young girl, I did not have uh, engineers that were role models. Um, I didn't even really know what an engineer was. And so to be able to go to school and get degrees, uh, go into the workforce and um, have um, the experiences that I've had 
uh, starting as a project engineer, working on small payloads on the shuttle, all the way to managing shuttle missions that actually built this International Space Station that we're talking about, uh, to uh, being over a team of people to put together plans for these exploration missions, and now to leading this organization. Um, that it, anything is possible if you, you know, dream big, have passion for what you do, work really hard, you know, never give up on yourself, and then just keep going for what you believe in. All right, Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you making the time for us. Oh, thank you. Coming next, an annual survey that informed government officials about the physical and mental health of children has been transformed. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how one doctor unlocked key information to improve the well-being of our nation's children. We'll be right back. The National Survey of Children's Health is released annually by the Department of Health and Human Services. It's used by local, state, and federal officials to shape policies on the physical and mental health of children in the U.S. Reem Gondor is the director of the Division of Epidemiology in the Maternal and Child Health Bureau for the Health Resources and Service Administration at HHS. Reem, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So explain the survey. Why is it done and what's it used for? Absolutely. So the National Survey of Children's Health is the largest national and state level data collection effort that we have that tracks the health and well-being of kids in this country. Um, what's perhaps most important about the survey is that we don't just look at kids' health kind of by itself, but we also consider um, the family and community factors that really can influence kids' health, whether or not they get health care, um, what kind of community they live in, all of those pieces that go into making a healthy child. So, you know, as you said, it's one thing to collect data on children's health, but what about looking at the causes of those health issues? How are you able to do that? So that's a great question. Our survey um, is done annually. So it's really an annual snapshot of kids' health. Um, so we aren't actually tracking individual kids over time, but what we are able to do because the survey is done on an annual basis is track trends over time. Um, and so recently, for example, uh, some of our researchers were able to publish a paper that really looked at um, increasing rates of diagnosed depression and anxiety between 2016 and 2020. Um, those kinds of trends give us a sense of what's going on with kids' health um, over time and what we might need to prepare from a policy standpoint, from a program standpoint. What do we need to do to make sure that kids are thriving? Well, as you said, uh, you, one of the changes that you made actually was making that an annual survey because before it was done every four years. But one thing that's really challenging in surveys is getting people to actually respond. So how did you increase response rates? That's a great question. Um, we could be here for a very long time trying to answer that, um, but I think we did a couple of things. Um, so uh, the first thing was is that we really tried to make sure that the survey was as tight as it possibly could be, um, and and you know tried to make sure that the questions that we were asking were the most essential questions. So um, the survey takes about a half an hour uh, right now. If you're a parent, you know just sort of going through routine questions about their, your your child. 
Um, we made a transition from calling people on the phone um, to allowing them to complete the survey by themselves um, in their home, either online or using paper and pencil. And that's probably the best thing that we can do to make sure that folks are responding when they are able um, and, and sort of most prepared to kind of answer those questions. So for the 2021 survey, you added questions to assess the impact of the COVID pandemic on children. What did you find? Well, um, those that that survey is just out of the field. So we come out of the field in January and we're processing the data right now. Um, we will be releasing it in October, which is pretty tight for a national survey of, of this magnitude. So we'll have responses for about 50,000 kids um, and we'll be able to report on um, impacts related to access to healthcare, impacts on the family, um, things of that nature. So we're not quite there yet, um, but we'll be there pretty soon. And in general, how do the survey results impact federal funding, if at all? That's a great question. Um, I would say that there's not necessarily a direct effect. So we don't necessarily have programs that are 100% hinged on this particular data source, but we found that our data certainly inform the way um, funding and policy decisions are made. All right, well, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 1030 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. 
And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.